I want to welcome everyone to this evening's colloquium. I'm Scott Osterwell. I'm the creative director of the MIT Education Arcade, and I've been coordinating this fall's uh, colloquia. Um, just my usual announcement, which is uh, if you're someone um, from the MIT community, you're probably automatically promoted to a panelist, uh, which means at the end of the talk, you're free to sort of ask questions out loud, verbally. If you are an if you're an attendee, um, you're also welcome to ask questions uh, through the Q&A channel on Zoom. Um, so and if, if uh, I happen to recognize if somebody, I may pr promote you to panelists, but otherwise you can use the QA, the QA function um, just to raise questions. Um, and with that, I'm gonna turn over, uh, I'm gonna turn over the uh, event to he Professor Heather Hendershot, who's gonna introduce our speaker. And so Heather, take it away. Hello, and uh, hi in particular to those of you who I've not yet met. It's nice to see you in little tiny squares on my screen, crushing your head. Um, <laughs> I'm really uh, delighted that we've got Adam Hart here uh, speaking to us today. Um, he is the author of this book, Monstrous Forms, Moving Image Horror Across Media, which is a fantastic book. Um, he is currently working on two other books, one on George A. Romero and um, also a historical and theoretical study of handheld cinematography and film, television and video. Um, and uh, I mean, as far as the Romero book goes, it's hard to imagine anyone alive in America today or in the world who is better positioned to write uh, a, a book on Romero from the archival standpoint, at least. So I'm really excited about that. And I'm also really excited about the other book on handheld cinematography. Um, it engages with the avant-garde, with cinema verite, with newsreels, TV documentaries, just a whole range of texts. Uh, there's one um, essay that's from this forthcoming book um, that's already been published in Discourse that I encourage you to check it out in that, uh, in that journal. Um, and uh, just in general, I really appreciate Adam's work for its theoretical and historical rigor, but also, you know, for the clarity and the precision of his prose. It is really um, a delight to read his work. Um, Adam has taught at Harvard, at North Carolina State University, at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, he's currently a visiting researcher at the University of Pittsburgh Libraries, where his work centers on the George A. Romero collection which he will tell you about right now. So on to Adam. Hello everyone. Thanks so much, Heather. Thanks, Scott. Um, so uh, I'll just say to start off um, that I've done a few versions of this talk um, and some are a bit more sort of a slideshow of all the cool stuff from the George A. Romero archive. Um, this one is a little bit more focused, uh, but there's some digressions into a bunch of just like, hey, look at all this cool stuff I found. Um, but I can certainly indulge in much more of that in the Q&A or if you wanted to follow up, um, you know, by email or whatever at a, at a later time. I'm always thrilled to talk about this stuff. Um, okay, so I'm going to try to share my screen. All right. Okay, um, all right, 
So this talk is an early attempt for me to process the gigantic mass of material that I've been sifting through from Pitt Library's George A. Romero collection, which they acquired last year. Um, so uh, again, this is a bit more focused, but that's not to say that there isn't digressions. Um, the story that I'm going to tell in analyzing a later film of Romero's veers from Beatnik Theater to 2001 A Space Odyssey fan fiction, to Bigfoot, to the Pittsburgh Steelers, to a Florida community college, and a few other points in between. And it's an evolving story. Um, in very literal ways. I spent the last few months sifting through hundreds of scripts and boxes of materials, um, but I've also been speaking with Romero's collaborators and trying to track down leads about other projects. One of the amazing things about this archive is that even though we have literally hundreds of, uh, hundreds of projects, um, we have about 300 scripts for uh, unproduced films. Um, the, c coming to about uh, 100, 120 distinct individual projects. But everyone that we've spoken to mentioned some other additional project that they worked on with George Romero. So we're finding more and more. And um, one of those leads suddenly started to pay off. Uh, in the last couple of weeks. So one of the projects that I'll be speaking about today um, briefly is a short film that's basically unknown, never been screened publicly called Jacaranda Joe that Romero filmed in the 1990s, but again, has never been publicly screened. Um, and suddenly in the last couple of weeks, I've been able to get in touch with uh, people who worked on it and people who may have additional materials. So while I've been you know, digging through the archive here, I guess I'm also working to build the archive in all sorts of ways. Um, and so you know, we'll, we'll see where all of this lands uh, in the next few months. Um, but anyways, uh, I have been calling this talk and its focus on cameras and filmmaking in Romero's movie, Romero's movies, uh, what the hell's with that camera anyway? So Night of the Living Dead debuted more than 50 years ago uh, in Pittsburgh on October 2nd, 1968, and nobody involved really knew what to expect. A plucky band of 20-somethings led by co-writer, director, and cinematographer George A. Romero had made what they called Pittsburgh's first feature film. Uh, shooting largely in a farmhouse just outside the city. This ultra-indie, low-budget exploitation movie would somehow grow in stature over the next decade or so, gaining a shocking amount of respectability for a black-and-white movie from Pittsburgh uh, about flesh-eating corpses. But the team that had worked around the clock for more than a year saw almost no direct profit from a movie that truly changed horror and in a lot of ways also changed independent cinema. Distributor incompetence put the film in the public domain, which meant that anybody with a print could show it for free. Well, distributor greed kept the filmmakers from seeing all but a fraction of the box office. It was a success in cinemas, but because it was in the public domain, it became a staple of late night programming for any TV executive looking to fill time for free. And so throughout the 1970s and into the 80s, it went some pre-internet version of viral and scarred several generations of children channel flipping late at night in the process. 
So the team managed to get several more features under their belt in the next few years, trying to expand their palette beyond the black and white gut cruncher that made them famous. But all those movies were woefully unsuccessful, playing only a handful of theaters and not receiving any widespread distribution. So the team disbanded more or less. Romero stuck around in Pittsburgh, continued writing scripts and continued working to build a local industry, making commercials, TV, industrials, but he would really only get the chance to return to features by returning to the horror genre and by returning to his very first film with a sequel, Dawn of the Dead. But even then, it took the clout of high profile fan Dario Argento and his European dollars to get it financed. Uh, that sequel, Dawn of the Dead, would be a substantial hit, but he stayed in Pittsburgh as independently as he could. Over the years, his brief dabblings with the margins of studio productions were wretched experiences. And in 1999, after about a decade of frustration and uh, inability to get a feature into production, he moved his filmmaking a few hours north to Toronto, where a friendlier tax code and government support made independent productions easier to undertake. So Romero never sought to become a horror specialist and he certainly never intended to corner the market on flesh eating zombies, but it let him work and he found ways to bring themes, tones and styles from his other projects into the films he was able to make. And for a filmmaker as fiercely independent and as far removed geographically from Hollywood as he was, he had a productive career directing 16 features, several of which had become beloved even outside of the genre's diehards. So he and his friends invented a new monster, the undead zombie, uh, that had taken hold in the global imagination in a way that maybe no other 20th century monster had. When was the last time a filmmaker invented a myth as pervasive and recognizable as the Romero zombie, the stumbling corpse driven only to feed on the living? Every horror fan knows and loves Freddy and Jason and Michael and even Frankenstein's monster and Bela Lugosi's Dracula. But how many Jason movies were made in South Korea in the 2010s? Are any art house legends like Jim Jarmusch making Nightmare on Elm Street movies? How many Michael Myers musicals have there been? And I just recently learned of the existence of Disney Channel zombie teen musicals, um, which I suppose I have to figure out a way to watch now, just um, you know, out of pure curiosity's sake. To find other kinds of films with this sort of global footprint, you'd probably have to go to gigantic blockbusters like Jaws and Star Wars. But that kind of pervasive cultural influence comes at a price. We know Romero as the man who gave us zombies and who made a bunch of zombie movies. And that's how distributors and financiers knew him as well. His few attempts to stray from zombie and zombie adjacent movies did not leave much of a dent at the box office. And if some have been recuperated as cult classics over the years, they didn't necessarily help him get his next movie financed. After night, he was the zombie guy to studios, to funders, to audiences, to critics, to fans. He never exactly resented that. He once likened it to a golden prison in which the food is the best food you've ever eaten. Um, but it was limiting in a way that did not reflect his full artistic ambitions. 
He stumbled backwards into horror after failing to get funding for previous features, most heartbreakingly for him, Wine of the Fawn, which we have production materials and a script for. Um, it's an artsy coming of age story tinted with allegory that's set in the Middle Ages and clearly influenced by Ingmar Bergman and Orson Welles. So in 2019, when the University of Pittsburgh Libraries acquired Romero's archives, we started to see a very different story that could be told about George Romero as an artist. Uh, the archive shows a remarkably prolific writer whose interests, so I guess this is the actual archive here, whose interests went beyond horror and way beyond zombies. Western slapstick kids movies, sci-fi epics, cartoons, talkie dramas, and on and on and on. In all, we have more than 300 drafts for about 120 different projects that Romero never got the chance to film or publish during his lifetime. And there are mentions of at least a dozen more that we have come across in contracts and in correspondence or in conversation with former collaborators. Um, nearly everyone we've spoken to has mentioned at least one other project that Romero worked on, uh, including works with multiple drafts that got far enough into production to begin raising money. As a writer, he was astonishingly prolific. Um, it's clear that some of the shorter treatments were written because writing them was fun. Um, so um, uh, here we have an X-rated Frankenstein spoof called Peter Stein um, that was written in the 1970s from the 90s, um, a bonkers little TV treatment called Nuns from Outer Space um, about aliens that happen to resemble nuns and their language happens to remember biblical speak. Um, the utterly delightful Monster Mash. This is my absolute favorite thing in the archive. Um, Monster Mash um, is a comedy about a team of mutants, monsters, creatures, and the like who travel around the world to administer emergency medical treatment to wounded and ailing monsters like themselves. The title would be uh, stylized with M-A-S-H all capitalized. Um, it's hilarious and delightful, and even though it's only 12 pages long, Romero manages to work in a rousing indictment of the capitalist healthcare system in his brief proposal. Um, and uh, if filming it would have required an effects budget roughly equal to the full budget of his previous several features combined, it ends with a jokey decoration of the project's financial promise. Think of the fun, no, forget the fun. Think of the toys, the TV series, the animated version on Sunday, Saturday morning. Think of the bucks. Written in the mid nineties when all of Romero's projects seemed to be cursed and film after film turned to ash. The irony of this conclusion was thick and bitter and pre premised on the assumption the very idea of a George Romero movie with a blockbuster budget was utterly absurd, but that didn't mean he couldn't have fun writing it. Um, so other stuff that we have uh, in the archive, we have um, photos, uh, just amazing behind the scenes photos that have never been seen before and script pages from Night of the Living Dead that tell us a whole lot about the actual production. This is my all-time favorite bit of marginalia. Um, from the shooting script of Night of the Living Dead, uh, George realized that he needed corpse shots for a particular sequence. Um, here we have an early version of Martin, which is my favorite of Romero's movies, which is not at all about a teenage vampire. It's about the vague ennui of a middle-aged businessman. 
And um, through this early fragment into the early drafts, we can trace its evolution to, um, uh, into what it is uh, on the screen. Um, he made, uh, he wrote a bunch of scripts for sci-fi epics in the 1980s, including War of the Worlds, um, a collaboration with a fellow Yinzer and a Marvel Comics legend, Jim Shooter, um, a sort of set in the future space superhero story. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe my second favorite thing in the archive, which is materials for a stage adaptation of a space rock sci-fi musical, Tales of Hoffman, um, so that he wanted to stage at Carnegie Mellon University. Um, okay, but we're going to focus here on Diary of the Dead and tracing back some ideas from that. So in my book, and elsewhere. Um, I've discussed the so-called found footage horror movie typified by Blair Witch Project and Paranormal Activity. And there I aligned the diegetic camera, the camera that's recording within the world of a film with a kind of vulnerability. It's a look uh, that's associated not with the power and control of what apparatus theory has dubbed the gaze, but rather with weakness, danger, and exposure. It's always partial and fragmentary and always reminds the viewer of all the unseen space just out of frame and all the unseen threats that may be lurking there. It's exceedingly rare for a camera operator to survive a found footage film, which might not seem unusual for a horror film taken in isolation, but the format all but guarantees the death of the protagonist more reliably than any other subgenre. So you can see what I mean here. Can you guys hear? Mary. Okay. Mary. Oh! <laughs> Shit. That's a very young Tatiana. Guys! Guys, what's happening? Fuck, god damn it. Hello? Hello? found this in one of the other rooms. Tell us your name. Uh, Say it. Deb, come on. Say it. Give me a break, Jay, Jason, Jason Creed. You see how it feels to have a camera shoved in your face? Okay, so Romero in one of what would be the first wave of found footage movies, there's a weird sort of lacuna where Blair Witch Project comes out in 1999. And then in 2007 to 2008, a bunch of found footage movies, including Cloverfield, uh, Wreck from Spain, Diary of the Dead, and the, the first theatrical festival version of Paranormal Activity all came out one after another. Um, and so unique among those, Romero is thematizing the problems and sort of moral failings of filming, but he's also aware of the sort of fragmentary partial nature of, uh, of the camera and calling our attention to everything that we can't see. Um, okay, so, um, shoot, lost my place. All right, so in Diary, which follows a group of University of Pittsburgh film students and their professor as the zombie apocalypse breaks out during the filming of a cheesy student horror movie. The director of that student film, Jason Creed, decides to document the chaos with his video camera. 
Romero's movie consists of sound and images recorded by Creed and his friends, including his girlfriend, Deborah, who we just saw, who is, I suppose, the film's nominal protagonist. And they are not just camera operators, but also editors, compiling their footage and uploading it to the internet as they go. Um, unlike many of that first wave of found footage horror movies, we're watching a completed film rather than raw footage. So uniquely, the film openly pathologizes Jason's need to film and keep filming, with other, fil with other characters seeing it not just as a distraction, but an intrusion, a way of avoiding engagement with the trauma befalling the world. That includes the sometimes urgent danger that flesh-eating zombies inflict on his friends. He insists on experiencing the world through the lens of his video camera, and then uploading the next part of his movie to social media each time he finds a connection. Again, the film pathologizes its compulsion, likening it to the zombie virus itself. The few surviving characters ending the film, shooting each other in security mo monitors after locking themselves away from the world in a panic room of a friend's mansion. The lens of the camera makes them unable to interact with anyone on a human level. It makes them in essence less human, feeding off the pain and suffering of others and it seems to be transmi transmissible to anyone who picks up a camera. It came easily to you, didn't it? Says the film professor, Maxwell here, uh, calling Jason's film a diary of cruelty. Um, this is them shutting themselves off at the end of the film. Um, and though Deborah, her professor and one other student survived the zombies by locking themselves away from the world, they've been infected by the camera virus. Deborah finishes the movie and uploads it online. In her voiceover, she makes it clear that she's finishing it for Jason, an act of disavowal that rhymes with Jason blaming his infection on his professor earlier in the film, and which has implications for the film's understanding of the camera and the camera virus. She's been overtaken by Jason's illness and has resigned herself to her fate. There's no sense in her work of drive or urgency, no enthusiasm in her voice. Jason, she says, thought he might be able to make a difference maybe change the world. She has taken up its mission, but she's merely going through the motions. No affect, no drive of her own. She's alive, but isolated. Uh, active, her activities having been reduced to the blank consumption and production of images, the completion of someone else's work, work which she seems to actively de detest as if she lacks a will of her own. She is essentially a zombie. As with most found footage movies, the camera operator, Jason, dies and in the typical way of found footage, his now zombified friend, still in costume from the mummy film, sneaks up behind him off camera. Luckily for the purposes of Deborah's edit, he manages to turn around just in time to catch a glimpse before the attack. So this is what I mean when I discuss the inherent vulnerability of found footage, footage's diegetic camera. Source of anxiety in found footage horror comes from the urgent knowledge of the disparity between the camera's viewpoint and the possible locations of threats. But it tends to be used as an attempt to assert control. Capturing the threat in your camera stabilizes it and seems to provide the kind of distance or even security that Jason presumes for himself. But those around Jason, they clearly understand him to be hiding behind the camera as an act of both cowardice and even cruelty. Filming and perhaps making zombie movies in particular, because Jason is making a zombie movie, um, being fundamentally inhumane. So 
The film ends with a coda that doesn't appear in most drafts of the screenplay. And once you play it, it's a little less than a minute. For those of you who have seen Night of the Living Dead, Jason once said he thought he could help. Should look familiar. Maybe even save some lives. This is the last thing he downloaded before he died. A couple of hometown Joes who went out to shoot at targets. But that day they used people. Dead people. You know, just for fun. There was one target that was different from the rest. A woman, tied by her hair to the branch of a tree. The boys had this one set up just for kicks. They got out their favorite 12 gauge and... Are we worth saving? You tell me. Um, if anybody here is squeamish, I apologize. That is the, the only bit of gore that I'm sending your way in this talk, I, I think. Um, okay, so um, for those of you who have seen Under the Living Dead, this is deeply familiar. In that film, Ben, and I'm gonna play this uh, on mute while I talk, Ben, the African-American hero, is a lone human of the main characters to survive the night. And after surviving an onslaught of the undead, he is, as well, you see here, he's killed by a posse of local hunters and police, all white, uh, um, bearing German shepherds, who mistake him for a zombie and shoot him right between the eyes. All right, Vince, hit him in the head, right between the eyes. Good shot. Okay, he's dead. Let's go get him. That's another one for the fire. Apologies to anybody who hasn't seen it for spoiling the ending of a 52-year-old film. Still worth seeing, though. Um, so in Night, the tragedy, the gutting emotional devastations of the ending comes not just from the death of the charismatic hero, but from the realization that this white posse fails to recognize his humanity. In the original script, uh, they realize their mistake, adding a note of bland, non-committal regret. Um, uh, it's too bad, an accident, the only loss we had the whole night. Um, in the finished film, uh, instead, as soon as he dies, the film immediately cuts to still images of Ben's body being dragged with meat hooks and lifted onto a pyre. So Diary has none of that uh, narrative motivation to its zombie hunting coda. It's simple, dumb, cruel spectacle of bloody target practice, with the targets being people, dead people. But Deborah identifies one zombie different from the rest a woman tied to a tree branch by her hair. The clear sadism, misogyny, and lack of empathy um, uh, for zombies or humans or anything, the, the sheer lack of recognition is chilling. And the film fades to black with Deborah morosely questioning whether humanity even deserves to be saved. The monstrosity of filmmaking and of filmmaking as a pursuit clearly reaches a pinnacle in Romero's work here as it's hard to go any farther. 
where this sadistic spectacle for the camera becomes an indictment of the whole of humanity with cameras in 2007 getting smaller and cheaper and starting to migrate onto our phones and computers, we were all becoming filmmakers and we were all becoming consumers of images. What damns us as a society is not that this video was filmed by a couple of quote hometown Joes, but that people watch it, that it's downloaded over and over again. This is perhaps an unexpected conclusion from a horror filmmaker whose movies in the 60s, 70s and 80s were gory enough to scandalize more conservative viewers and earn a few bans around the world. The suspicion of filmmaking, however, was something that he had been working through for a very long time. <coughs> Excuse me. So this is where I'm going to indulge in a few archival digressions, but it all comes back together, I promise. In an envelope, in an envelope marked old writings in the archive. There were a number of short stories, fragments, and treatments that Romero wrote in the 60s and early 70s, including two versions of a story, one of which is titled Enemies. Neither is dated, but I feel safe assert asserting that the one on the left, the untitled shorter story, came first, as it is a barely elaborated, barely altered version of the first segment of 2001 A Space Odyssey, in which two tribes of prehuman apes fight over territory. And then on the right, in what I'm presuming to be the second version, uh, which retains some of the same descriptions of characters and a basic framework, Romero digs deeper into the psyches of the proto-human characters and into the functioning of their society. So Romero's films and screenplays, his zombie films in particular, tend to be more immediately concerned with the monstrosity of humans. Violent and cruel, racist, misogynist, classist, exploitative. And he thinks of monsters as a kind of radical alternative to humanity and crucially to human civilization and structures of society. If zombies are fairly blank ideological vehicles, say for their function of overturning everything and feasting on the remains, there is still a progression throughout his career as he becomes increasingly concerned with excavating traces of humanity amongst the growling feeding undead. And if zombie society doesn't necessarily, necessarily model a kind of utopian community, some of his creature scripts do. Um, <clears throat> uh, the zombies uh, always suggest an end to a society, um, uh, to a cruel society expressing more than anything else, an urgent desire to start over, but the creatures tend to provide uh, a different model we can follow. So uh, around this time, or possibly a couple years later, Romero was on his own in debt and, and unable to raise money for future productions. He was writing a ton, but getting nothing made besides commercials and the occasional commission. That is until he met a video maker and technician named Richard Rubenstein, who interviewed him for a small industry publication called the Filmmaker's Newsletter in 1973. In those days, video also meant television. And after hitting it off, the two of them started cooking up ideas for collaboration that could help restore Romero's fortunes in the world of production. Working in Pittsburgh and utterly unwilling to leave, Romero was far from the centers of production and financing. He had a tarnished track record and a negative balance in the bank, but he did have something, a kind of unique, a kind of local resource that was utterly unique to the, to the city, the Pittsburgh Steelers, who along with the Pirates and a handful of other athletes 
were leading a remarkable sports renaissance in a city that was otherwise rapidly declining in both economic and cultural standing. Like other mid-sized cities with longtime sports franchises, the Steelers were incorporated into the DNA of the place, an essential cultural institution, and at no time was that more true than the 1970s, and at no time were they more popular outside of the city either. So in 1973, Romero made a 50-some-minute documentary about the Steelers' most popular player, running back Franco Harris, that served as a sort of proof of concept for the next sports documentary, O.J. Simpson, Juice on the Loose, which was broadcast on national network television uh, in 1974. Um, if you've heard of it, it's because it received a minor revival in the 90s as some of Romero's collaborators tried to capitalize on, exploit Simpson's newfound infamy. Um, a brief aside, Romero was all, always a vocal fan of Kubrick and the mix of slapstick and blacker than black satire of a film like Dr. Strangelove can be seen in most of Romero's films of the 1970s. But weirdly, the OJ documentary was also a tribute to Kubrick. The original concept for the film was to give it a title acknowledging Simpson's newly broken rushing record that riffed on Kubrick, 2003 yards, a football odyssey. Titles, I have to say, were never a strength for Romero. Um, but that initial inspiration remains in the opening of the film, which is a highlight montage set to Zarathustra. So based on the uh, moderate but important success of the Simpson documentary, Romero and Rubinstein used the, the Franco doc, which they had finished, as the pilot for a new TV series called The Winners that they'd spent the next year, that they'd spend the next year and a half producing. It had no network home, so it was more like a group of specials produced under the banner of the winners than a conventional television show. Um, uh, it consisted of profiles of prominent sports figures, largely but not exclusively Pittsburgh figures like Pirates Hall of Famer Willie Stargell, professional wrestling pioneer Bruno San Martino, and NASCAR legend Mario Andretti. And most importantly, three more documentaries on various Steelers players. Uh, Romero directed a handful. Uh, the Franco doc and the Bruno San Martino doc are particularly wonderful as they double as uh, idiosyncratic portraits of the city and its fans. Um, but it provided Romero and a growing family of crew and collaborators with regular work, laying the groundwork for a film industry in the Steel City and making it possible for Romero to continue working in Pittsburgh with local talent. But it would be several years before he would get to make another feature. So during the production of The Winners, Romero and Rubenstein were still trying to get features made. And of course, the most logical possibility was a sequel to Romero's massively successful debut. In early 1974, he met with American International Pictures, founded by Roger Corman, along with James Nicholson and Sam Arkoff, although only Arkoff were made at that time, about producing a sequel called Dawn of the Dead. The initial idea for Dawn was always uh, was already there, a small group of survivors secluded from the chaos and the zombie apocalypse in a shopping mall. Um, though it would be several years before the familiar narrative structure and cast of characters from the finished uh, film would fall into place. Hmm. No film came from that meeting, but the feedback was crucial for Romero's efforts over the next few years. AIP was interest, interested in producing it, 
but they were at the time looking to market their films to quote, niche audiences. So they wanted Romero to rewrite it for an all black cast and they wanted to put a superstar athlete in the lead. Now there was really only one athlete popular enough to star in a movie at that time and Romero had just made a documentary with him, O.J. Simpson. But Romero quickly found out that O.J. wasn't available or wasn't interested. He was already starring in a studio super production, The Towering Inferno, which would have been both occupying Simpson's time and probably pushing him out of reach for AIP's budgetary possibilities. So this AIP collaboration fizzled out, but the idea of using a high profile athlete to get a feature made clearly stuck with Romero. He had grown very close to both the players and the executives of the Steelers. And if Franco Harris wasn't famous enough to open a movie made even on the margins of Hollywood, he might be enough of a draw for the purposes of Romero's ultra indie low budget productions. So he came up with two projects for Franco, working with the Steelers organization to various degrees on both of them. The first is a truly bizarre spoof of 50s creature features and teen movies called Monster Movie, in which Franco and whichever Steelers they could get to show up would play horny college athletes trying to survive an alien invasion. It obviously never went anywhere. But Romero obtained an official partnership with the Steelers for a second a movie called Footage, which is yet another atrocious title devised by Romero upon referring to the creature, Bigfoot. Uh, it's built around a film crew that's, uh, uh, that's recording images, footage, um, and possibly a triple pun also on NFL football. Um, <clears throat> it's a sort of proto found footage film built around a film crew and the images they've recorded, but never actually screening the footage within the structure of the film. So there are several versions of the stories with sometimes big variations, and it's unclear as they're not dated which versions come earlier or later. The basic story is about a TV show called Outdoorsman USA, or some slight variation on that, in which Franco would have starred as the guest host on the TV show, a famous NFL quarterback, and in one version, a country music superstar as well. Um, the show's crew and hunting experts would lead him through the woods in search of game, or at least that was the show's premise. In the film, they encounter a baby Bigfoot and someone carries a crying child back to their camp. The baby was not alone, but part of a society of big feet uh, living deep in the woods and they rush after the kidnappers. The humans in all versions respond immediately with gunfire. In one, in one version, a crew member sees that the big feet are intelligent enough to understand what guns are, so he holds his barrel against the adorable baby Bigfoot's head. Um, as with Night of the Living Dead, the bulk of the film is devoted to arguments within the group of humans and demonstrating their own inherent monstrosity, which is contrasted directly with the family concern and love of the Bigfoot society. Um, he's also clearly working out some of his frustrations with the industry as the slimy anti-Semitic producer tries to force the camera operator to give him the film of the big feet uh, with a camera operator resisting because he knows that that would ensure the destruction of this natural community in the woods. Uh, one version of the film 
One version of the film ends with a camera, uh, camera operator and the athlete winning the moral arguments, returning the baby Bigfoot and discarding the film, uh, ending with the big feet celebrating. They don't understand what film is, of course, and the script ends with them throwing the reels in the air like streamers. In some versions, uh, Romero returns to the uh, hostage taking um, as the producer holds a gun to the baby's head while an adult Bigfoot sneaks up behind him and tears him in two. Uh, in another, the adult Bigfeet towering over the producer throw him in the cage the producer had built to keep the baby, having been driven insane by the trauma and screaming, making sounds that, quote, are almost identical to those of the baby Bigfoot. The producer is the villain, and in all of these, the cinematographer and crew only earn absolution by destroying the film. Here are some of the designs. Fat Bigfoot is uh, your new favorite monster. He's my friend and yours. Um, I was able to track down one of the artists who does not remember this at all, but after jogging some memory, this there's no explanation for what this is, but it was included alongside the uh, design. So it's assumed that this is some kind of a makeup test. Um, uh, so one of the artists who I was able to track down, um, we just sort of uh, spitballed for a while. And our best guess is that he would have gotten this job through art college. Um, and so Romero would have had some contact at various art colleges and just put up a flyer um, uh, soliciting designs for Big Feet for a movie and um, offering you know whatever little bit he could pay which was probably fine for college students in 1975. Um, so this was yet another project that never materialized at least not in that form but the idea never died. George Romero loved Bigfoot and he loved the idea of building a story around a camera crew in the forest. In 1994 George Romero was invited to Valencia Community College a small but highly respected school in Florida to shoot a short film as part of an innovative uh, new endowed position. This was a remarkably fertile period for Romero the writer, but an exceedingly difficult one for Romero the director as project after project fell through. And this offered the increasingly rare opportunity to actually get behind a camera. The film Jacaranda Joe was the first that Romero shot wholly outside of the Pittsburgh region. And the arrangement with the college was such that none of his usual crew would be participating. So not only has it never been screened, it's almost entirely unknown. We have a script, storyboards, and a bunch of production documents. Um, and I might have tracked down more. Uh, I've spoken to people who worked on it. It was indeed filmed and edited, and it ran about 18 minutes long. So Romero conceived of the script as proof as a proof of concept for a feature. So although it's structured to stand on its own, it consistently gestures towards larger arcs. The film is entirely different from footage, built around a Geraldo-like talk show called Remington, in which the sleazy host interviews a series of guests with info or opinion on the opinions on the latest regional news, which had brought hundreds of people to a small town in search of a glimpse. A film crew shooting a TV show about hunting and the outdoors and their guest host, a famous athlete, encountered a hairy ape-like creature in the swamps near Jacaranda, Florida. The creature was dubbed Jacaranda Joe 
and this is Joe. Um, okay, so uh, footage used the device, footage the 70s film uh, or script, used the device of a film crew to discuss the ethics of filming and to distinguish modernity's greed and pettiness from the more perhaps stereotypically natural existence of the Bigfoot community. Uh, we would never actually see the footage that was filmed by the camera operator that was, again, the crux of the dramatic conflict within the film. The footage was never found, but gleefully destroyed before it could be developed or viewed by anybody. Um, uh, uh, Jack Aranda Joe takes the next step in actually showing the footage, but with a tension-diffusing device of a sensationalist talk show. Um, this was Romero's attempt, as he put it, to see if audiences could be scared by a documentary format. Um, let's see. In both footage and Jacaranda Joe, human-like creatures in the wilderness offer sharp distinction to the humans. Um, and film is essential uh, to that distinction. In footage, it provides the potential to profit while ensuring the destruction of a community, um, one whose survival is crucial for Romero precisely because it suggests an alternative possibility for existence uh, to the greed and violence of humanity, and of course, the film industry. In Joe, that community may have already been destroyed. Because of the video, crowds have flocked to the area, rows of souvenir stands and food carts line the main street of the closest town, and bikers rally nearby for the hell of it. We get only the briefest of glimpses of the creature, with no indication of the larger swamp ape community or family. Um, what we get instead is a representative of the Mikosuke tribe. Uh, another brief digression, one of the actors considered for the role of Benjamin, the Mikosuke tribal leader, was a local actor and author of Choctaw Cherokee descent who provided the producer with detailed uh, notes on Benjamin's portrayal. Uh, that author who had not yet published his first novel was Al Goingback who had quickly become one of the most revered horror novelists in the country and fully separate from this project, a collaborator with Romero on yet another film for which Romero failed to gain financing. So Benjamin's role is cliched to say the least, but he voices a strong critique of the violence and indifference of white society. He had been arrested for killing a panther with his bare hands as was required to join his tribal council. And on the talk show, he gets in a shouting match with, quote, redneck hunters who want to shoot more animals. He responds, more panthers are killed by rental cars than by Native Americans when they get indignant at his own transgressions. But he goes further, asking white society to respect the laws of his community, just as the indigenous peoples have respected theirs. Benjamin's moral code requires him to tell the truth, which as he points out, white society's Judeo-Christian rules do as well. So in both of these, uh, blah, 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 um, sorry. Um, so the use of diegetic, uh, sorry, I just got lost, my apologies. Okay, so um, uh, in, <laughs> In Jacaranda Joe, Benjamin uh, helps to align the critique of, uh, of modern society that Romero associates with filmmaking with a kind of more quote unquote stereotypically natural existence, one that's not unproblematic, obviously. Um, okay, so this use of diegetic camera operators to depict filmmaking as a corrupting force 
however, uh, goes back even further past, uh, past footage, past the 1970s, um, even beyond the start of Romero's own film career. Um, there are, of course, predecessors to the found footage horror film that were hugely influential to Romero, including Peeping Tom, a film in which a voyeur murders women with a camera outfitted with a knife, and Orson Welles' radio broadcast of War of the Worlds. Powell and Wells were two of Romero's favorite filmmakers, uh, mentioned frequently in interviews as influences and inspirations. War is actually directly uh, referenced in Diary, um, and Romero had clearly been thinking about it, at least since he wrote his War of the World script in the 1980s. Well, Powell was not only possibly Romero's biggest inspiration, but he became a friend of Romero's late in Powell's life, uh, um, right around the time he would have been working on Jacaranda Joe. So both of those works have been mentioned by critics and fans as clear ancestors of the Blair Witch Project, but there is one work that to my knowledge never has, and it is even more crucial to Romero's artistic biography. In 1960, just after he turned 20 years old, Romero joined his friend Rudy Ritchie in a small production of Jack Gelber's jazz play, The Connection. The sensation of New York theater in 1959, the essential avant-garde theater troupe, the Living Theater's production helped inaugurate a new era of American drama. Largely plotless, the play consists of a bunch of beatniks and junkies and jazz musicians waiting for their heroin dealer. Romero, who would later claim that he was recruited primarily because he was large, played Leech, the owner of the rundown loft in which all of the junkies await their fix. Uh, accompanied by an opportunistic writer and two cinematographers, all of whom hope to event to ultimately exploit these subjects for a film. One of these subjects grows frustrated and unleashes on the filmmakers, accusing them of treating his life and the lives of his friends as a freak show. So the influence of this laid back, almost structuralist, improvisatory collaborative uh, play was uh, apparent even in something like Night of the Living Dead. Um, if the connection is about a bunch of junkies stuck in a, stuck in a crafty, crappy apartment until their dealers arrives, getting more and more jumpy and tense, the night basically transposes this basic dynamic to the wildly fantastical dynamic of the zombie apocalypse. Um, but even at that stage of his, even at the earliest stage of his career, filmmaking is opportunistic and destructive. It fundamentally exploits its subjects and asserts a dehumanizing distance from behind the lens. Romero, of course, did not write the connection and any discussions of influence, however formative they may be, are fuzzy at best. But there seems to be a direct line between the connection and Diary of the Dead with a remarkable consistency. It's even there in Night of the Living Dead, where the news crew led by beloved local TV host and newsman and Romero's early benefactor, Chili Billy Bill Cardill, is benign and apparently performing essential work. But even a cuddly local hero like Chili Billy is aligned with the all-white posse that shoots Ben right between the eyes. Um, but of course, with Diary, the denunciation becomes explicit and explicitly aligned with horror movies as Jason's hacky mummy movie we see at the beginning of the film gives way to a grittier, 
more realistic zombie movie that destroys the lives of everyone around him. So there's undoubtedly some dime store psychologizing of Romero himself that we could do, and we might not be incorrect, but I want to think of this as intentional rhetoric, one that is consistent with a filmmaking ethos that drove him to remain independent and remain far from the centers of finance and production, adopting a mode of filmmaking that is collaborative and unregimented, that remains flexible and open to change over the course of shooting and invites contributions from everyone on set. What makes in Diary of the Dead the filming virus so seductive and so dangerous is how easily it becomes exploitative and alienating, how quickly it becomes an agent of distance. If he'd been infected by the camera virus, he'd spent a lifetime interrogating it, even trying to combat it. But he was always ambivalent about his legacy and his career, and for him, the diegetic camera and eventually the found footage film was an especially potent means of making critique. So as I said before, the diegetic camera in found footage horror tends to communicate vulnerability first and foremost, offering a partial fragmentary view of a scene in which monsters and other threats might be lurking. The camera operators and diary, Jason in particular, use their cameras as a way of distancing themselves from the events in front of them. But that distance primarily manifests in a lack of intervention. Jason cannot help or offer support to the, pe uh, to the people who are in danger or suffering because he is hidden behind his camera. And in the end, a zombie sneaks up behind him and bites him as soon as he spins his camera around. The camera is ultimately imp impotent signaling both a lack of control and a lack of protection, driving away his friends, endangering them, and ultimately causing his own death. The ending in which survivors lock themselves away from the world to edit the footage and film the security mon monitors ironizes Jason's fantasy of the camera's gaze. They're kept safe, but only by literally locking themselves off from the rest of the world. If this is ultimately what Romero thinks of the camera's powers and dangers, it's a critique, a denunciation even, in which he includes himself. But the critique also offers a path to a solution. If filmmaking is isolating and inhumane, then it requires a communal collaborative approach, one which eschews the temptations of big budget studios and which allows for a kind of collective expression or at least an expression of community. To paraphrase Romero from an interview in the 1980s, the greatest tragedy of a zombie apocalypse would not be for humanity to be overthrown, but for the survivors to fall back into old patterns and society to reset as it was before. Diary is his most pessimistic work because he can't see to the other side. The camera virus has infected everyone. And even if we survive the flesh-eating zombies, We'll be making and consuming images on our own forever. Thank you. Thank you so much. Whoops. Can you guys hear me? I can hear you. Oh, good. Hello. Thank you so much, Adam. That was really, uh, really fascinating. It was wonderful to see all those archival materials. Um, I wonder if I, I'd like to kick us off with two questions, and they're totally different. Um, one is about, uh, Diary of the Dead, which um, you have so ably explained as 
a critique of, of, of filmmaking and the notion of the camera virus and so on. But it also is very much, as you know, a sort of uh, attack on social media and phones and blogs and the kind of, it's kind of a grumpy old man movie in certain ways of like- 100%, kids yeah. With their phones, you know? Um, and I wonder if you could talk about that angle of the film, which of course is sort of ironic because it's a film that mostly saw digital distribution and people probably watched on their phones a lot and stuff, you know, because it was so minimally distributed. Yeah. And I'm sure he was aware of that, right? Um, yeah. So that's that's one question. And the other one is totally different. And it's, um, you know, when you were talking about some of the um, earlier films, you know, after Night of the Living Dead, um, you kind of hopped over a creep show and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about Creepshow, uh, place it within his career. And, and you know, I'm just thinking about it financially because you were talking about so many of, of Romero's struggles and Creepshow, uh, I don't know the numbers at all, but I would be shocked if it were a box office disaster. It seems so marketable. It's got some of the biggest stars he had, probably the biggest stars he had before Land of the Dead, right? I mean, like Hal Holbrook, first Ed, Ed Harris is not like big at that point, but um, you know, it's got Stephen King, so it's got some sort of cult appeal from that, or Adrian Barbeau, or Fritz Weaver. Mm -hmm. um, so I've just, those two questions. If, yeah. if you could. So um, I'll start off with Creepshow. So um, <clears throat> After the success of Dawn of the Dead, he was able to parlay that into a three-picture deal. And he had financing and creative freedom for the first and only time in his career for those three films with some caveats. One of them was going to be a horror film that was a collaboration with King. And the other one had to be another sequel to Dawn of the Dead. Mm -hmm. So Day of the Dead would be the third one, Creepshow would be the second, and the first he just had complete free reign, so he makes Night Riders, which is a movie about a modern day motorcycle jousting troupe that's modeled after Camelot and the Renaissance fairs. It's crazy. <laughs> I, I, I like the film quite a bit, but the idea that he could have thought of that as commercial in any way is remarkable. Um, but Creepshow did fine. Like it didn't do great. It didn't do terrible. It sort of found its niche audience on video over the years. It, I think it was number one at the box office the first week that it opened. And then the studio for some reason pulled all ads and it sank very quickly. Um, so like, again, it did fine. It wasn't a disaster. Day of the Dead was a disaster. Um, <clears throat> it was a film that was, you know, Dawn of the Dead, like has a lot on its mind, but it's also like candy colored and fun and funny. And Day of the Dead is grim and kind of unpleasant in a lot of ways um, and did not uh, excite audiences in the same way. And the failure of Day of the Dead killed a lot of opportunities. Whereas Creepshow, like again, it did fine, but Day of the Dead was always going to be the next movie. Um, yeah. Um, but the other question, wait, what was the other question? But Diary of the Dead is a cranky old man movie about- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, a a absolutely. Um, and it was made in 2007, so like the height of MySpace, basically. Um, <clears throat> and there's very clearly a kind of um, grumbling towards young filmmakers. Uh, mm -hmm. 
like especially young filmmakers who want to be horror guys that you see in a lot of Romero's like uh, just very like interviews and writings and in his films late in his life. Um, I think there's for him kind of a little bit of resentment that he got saddled with horror and there's all these people who are like that's their only aspiration is making a, a dumb zombie movie or whatever. Um, but he also clearly sees, okay, so if it is a grumpy old man movie in which uh, social media is the problem, um, it's coming before Facebook, before iPhones had been, um, had been introduced. And I think that what he's seeing is not just like the kids with their phones, but everybody turning into um, someone whose experience with each other is mediated by screens. Um, and as he would understand that as filmmakers, as photographers, and as audiences, which is a kind of relationship that he's very suspicious of, and that he's always sort of trying to arrange new, arrange new configurations for, mm -hmm. for how the filmmaker can relate to audiences. Um, and so, you know, I would have liked to have had a conversation with him, um, you know, in the 2010s about what he thinks of all these kids and his and their phones. But I, yeah, I, I mean, he, he tends to align technology of any kind with a kind of corrupting influence with this, you know, kind of stereotypical ideal of a more natural kind of existence that you see with Big Feet or, you know, the proto-humans in his Stanley Kubrick fan fiction, or, you know, again, very problematically with the Mikosuke tribe in Jackeron Joe. Um, and to some extent, kind of with the zombies and like Land of the Dead uh, or survival. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. He was always going to grumble about it. <laughs> Great, thank you. Who else has a question? Amber. Thank you. Hi, Adam. Thank you so much for your talk. I was wondering if you know which was the last script that he wrote that couldn't produce. Because I mean, like you have been telling us that he couldn't produce a lot, but yeah. I guess like the last one because he died or something like that. And what I was also wondering, what do you think he would be producing right now? Like uh, with all these like social media as Heather mentioned. So it's difficult to say because at a certain point in the 21st century in particular, he realized that not only it, like it had gotten worse, not only was he, could he only get funding for horror, but he could only get funding for zombie movies and more than that, only for living dead sequels. So that's a lot of what he worked on in the last like 10 years of his life, basically. Um, but the last script that he worked on that I know about um, is an adaptation of a novel called The Zombie Autopsies, um, which was written by Steve Schlossman, who's like a buddy of mine. He teaches at Harvard um, in the psychology department, and they were never able to get funding for it. And they worked on this for a couple of years, going all around, you know, Hollywood and independent producers and all that, and just never came to anything. 
the last thing, so there's there's two final projects that are are both really interesting and they're both written. Um, one is a short story called The Liberator. That's a Gollum story that you can find online. It was um, a, a collaboration with his longtime friend, George Nama, who's currently married to his ex-wife, Christine Forrest, um, but who he'd known since the 1950s, like since he first moved to Pittsburgh. Um, and, uh, you know, George was the one who actually introduced him to the owners of the Monroeville Mall so that he could shoot Dawn of the Dead there. They'd been talking about collaborating for a while. So George Nama uh, is a renowned visual artist now, and this collaboration was for a gallery exhibit where Nama would provide the visuals, uh, etchings, and uh, Romero would write a story. And it's in some ways very much a grumpy old man story, but it's really fascinating and moving. And you can you can find it online. Um, it's a as a it's a catalog for the exhibit, but it contains the full story. And the other thing was uh, at a certain point when he realized he wasn't going to get maybe he wasn't going to get to make a film again, but he definitely wasn't going to get the kind of budget he wanted again. So he started writing a novel um, that was about a quarter, a third of the way done when he passed away. And it was an attempt to kind of summarize, but also further the zombie mythology and trying to tie everything together. Um, it was finished by Daniel Krauss after Romero's death and came out a couple of months ago. It's called The Living Dead. It's really great. And you may find a character about halfway through who shows up named Hart. Um, that's not a coincidence. <laughs> it's uh, the coolest thing that's ever happened to me, which is that in the George Romero uh, zombie novel, uh, my buddy Dan wrote me in as a character. So um, yeah. <laughs> um, but other than that, I don't know what he would be working on because you see just like a drop off in production at a certain point when he's sort of like he's old, but also like he just like he had had in the 90s and early 2000s, so many projects fell through. And like that happens to any filmmaker, but when you're working like as independently as he did, like everything has to go right for a film to get made. So like one project got canceled because it was too similar to this new Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock movie called Speed that was gonna beat them to theaters. There was another one where somehow it all hinged on getting a star like Sharon Stone to be in it and they she somehow got the money to offer her 12 million dollars or something like that and she turned it down because she didn't want to be in a fucking ghost movie he he does that kind of impression when he tells the story um and there's just like lots of little things like that and it just happened so many times that you know like at a certain point and at a certain point in your life like when you're in your 60s i think you stop writing a script every day <laughs> Um, and stop like having that ambition to make your science fiction epic that uh, adapts tales of Hoffman into a space rock musical. Um, you know, and so it's mostly zombie stuff in the 21st century and not much else besides the projects that got made. 
um, after like 2005 or six. Yeah. Thank you. Who's next? I can't see everyone's hand, but I see Laura. Hi, Adam. Thank you so much for uh, your presentation. I found it fascinating. I have to admit that my question is coming uh, directly from what you presented. And um, because I myself am, have not watched these films, I uh, don't do well with horror, although I very much appreciate horror. Um, I'm trying to get better at that. So uh, I'll make it a point to watch some of these soon. Uh, my question is kind of thinking about, well, I have two questions, but one is thinking about um, how you, you talked about that there was increasing isolation or he represents increasing isolation due to the over-mediatization or um, us seeing each other through screens only. Um, I'm wondering if there was also uh, influence particularly of kind of neoliberal policies that were um, coming out in you know, the 80s, 90s that were affecting the Pittsburgh community, if that um, had any effect on, on his work as well. It's, it's just hard for me to, um, you know, when I hear things about isolation or even when you're talking about um, what seems to be ethics of care with Bigfoot and, and caring for the family, it's really hard for me to, to think that that may not have had some sort of influence on him. And I'll quick say the second one just so anyone else can get in. Uh, the second one has to do with, I was really interested when he talked about um, the, the use of a black character in his first film um, uh, and, and that that wasn't necessarily a choice and how interesting that is, but that it seemed like he almost leaned into um, kind of a racial narrative in, in terms of, it's hard to ignore the it looking like a racial lynching the way that the final film came out. So I'm wondering about the effects of that. Um, if you could just talk about those two things, please. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in, in terms of uh, like the, the politics of the 90s and 2000s, um, it, it drove him out of Pittsburgh, basically. Um, you know, the, the tax code and various other, you know, right-wing or neoliberal sort of changes within the state made it almost impossible for him to film here. And so it doesn't seem like a coincidence to me that all of his stuff in the 21st century, um, you know, four films that he shot in Toronto, or at least in Canada, um, they all feel very, they're very much about isolation and seclusion. Um, it's not that that's not there before, but it seems to have like a different sort of manifestation in those movies. Um, because like the community in Pittsburgh and the city and the sort of family of filmmakers that he had developed were all always incredibly important to him. You know, you see, you read interviews with him from just after Night of the Living Dead, or actually even before that. And he's as interested in building a film industry in Pittsburgh as he is in making the next movie. Now, of course, he's, you know, obviously interested in making the next movie also, but, you know, he, he doesn't leave for Hollywood, which, you know, if you don't make any money off of Night of the Living Dead, the way you cash in on it is to use it as your calling card at all the studios and then get that gets you in the door. But that never even occurred to him. Instead, he wanted to build Hollywood on the Mon, which is not a very catchy tagline, but which I see repeated a few times in the early 1970s. 
and so you know when he has to like it it very literally drives him away and at a time after which like in the early 1990s like he seemed to have succeeded there were a bunch of high profile film productions that he did not make that was that were in Pittsburgh and so like his friends his colleagues you know a whole new generation of filmmakers got to stay in the city and got to keep working and you know um, there wasn't really a film school here at the time and so you know there's a whole generation of, uh, of film crew and producers and such who basically learned how to make a movie on the set of Silence of the Lambs or Night of the Living Dead or you know this really strange John Landis movie called Innocent Blood or some of George's like late 80s early 90s productions and then over the course of the 90s it basically makes it impossible for him to stay. Um, I do think that he thought about things in a sort of he he did have a political perspective on on the world but that the way that it would have manifested most viscerally for him was in that literal exile from the community that meant so much to him and god i did it again i forgot what the second question was uh in the night of the living dead um, oh yeah, yeah yeah thank you thank you very much for the first answer as well thank you um so, uh, you know, he always, he always claimed that it was completely unintentional that Dwayne Jones, the actor, was just the best actor who showed up. Um, but that's bullshit. Like, yes, they did not write a script intending it to be, you know, um, intending it to be like a civil rights, um, you know, didactic tract or whatever, but you don't have a script in which a black man uh, slaps a white woman and shoots a white man and then have you know like a white posse with German shepherds kill him you don't do that unless you know that what the political residence is like these are choices that you know you would have to be not just naive but stupid to not understand <laughs> like had some kind of meaning um and you know it I think that at some level he recognized that that gave the film a kind of thematic ambition that a lot of um, that a lot of horror films didn't have. Although it's not uncommon for a science fiction film, and George was a huge fan of like '50s science fiction. Um, you know, in later years, he and other like um, horror fans would kind of denounce. There's a corny science fiction explanation about radiation from the moon or something that may have caused the dead to rise. It's like, I don't know, we shouldn't, no, no explanation, no explanation, that, that, that makes it cheesy and corny. But that's what he was into. He liked cheesy science fiction movies. And it's not unusual for science fiction movies to have that sort of political commentary, particularly about racism and intolerance. Like that's something you see in, you know, uh, 50s and 60s science fiction over and over again. Um, and so, like, I think at some level he recognized that he could use this movie for that. Um, I think, like, he's sort of a, you know, like, more sort of, like, middle-of-the-road liberal in the sense that he's much more concerned with, like, um, acknowledging the, um, like, the, the value of one's humanity rather than exploring the, you know, like, 
specific oppressions of being a black man in America in 1968, um, or you know, like the the specifics of what misogyny or homophobia means at the time that he's making a film. But that doesn't mean that they're they're completely absent. Like he's you know has this kind of vague sort of uh, humanist approach to politics, uh, vaguely humanist. I, yeah, whatever. Anyways, um, but he thinks that it's important, and he and he's really driven by this sense of like society needing to change, um, even in his more optimistic movies, like. His, he's, his more optimistic movies are mostly optimistic about like being able to tear down the whole system and start something else. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, Night Riders, which again, bizarre movie, bizarre choice to make like, I got free reign, I'm gonna make the motorcycle jouster movie. Like that's what crazy. Um, but it's all about like a community that sort of forms on the outside of society with its own rules. That's all about like honoring each other and following a different code than everybody else follows. And so in a lot of ways, like Knight Rider feels like this key to his entire filmography, you know, of him wanting to build a different kind of society, basically. Um, yeah, long-winded answer. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, thank you so much for your for your talk. Um, I, I wanted to follow up on what you were just saying, and and also, um, I I mean, just it, it seems like um, there's a theme throughout much of what you're talking about, um, in which you know it makes me think that um, the kind of um, critique of the act of filming, critique of the camera as, as sort of dehumanizing, um, that on, on a more specific level, could, could that be seen as a critique of Hollywood itself, you know, from someone who was an outsider not just by choice, but also by these constant rejections, right, um, of his scripts, and and so um, even the idea that you just mentioned of, of creating an outsider society, um, you know, echoes with what you were saying earlier about the kind of outsider community of filmmakers that he fostered in in Pittsburgh. So I'm I'm curious to hear about, um, you know, either specifically in the archive in his own writings or interviews or letters, you know, what, what you found of him talking about Hollywood as an industry. He absolutely hated it. Um, you know, he, I think he's one of those people who never sold out because he was physically incapable of doing so. Um, you know, he got a couple of opportunities as a teenager to be like a PA on uh, some Hollywood productions, including one, I think, North by Northwest. Um, and it really sort of soured him on the way that Hollywood works. Um, you know, he liked Hitchcock, but he was never like a, he, he was never somebody who he brought up in 
you know, like in interviews as an inspiration or something like that. And I think it's because of that experience where everything seemed so rigid and Hitchcock was always sort of in battle with the studio having to find ways to work around them. And that largely came through like very inflexible planning for everything. Um, but what he really disliked about Hollywood was this sense of, this sense of exploitation at the expense of the filmmakers. This sense that like the people who are making the film don't get to decide what the film should be. And in his, you know, his flirtations with Hollywood with a, a film called Monkey Shines, that's, you know, it's good but flawed, let's say. Um, he was forced to film a, like uh, an absurd happy ending um, that, you know, takes place in the well, in the building that I'm in right now, it takes place right outside of it. <laughs> so like, I kind of appreciate that about it, but I, you know, he's, it's, it is absurd. Um, and his experience filming the dark half uh, Stephen King adaptation with, um, you know, like a, a, what they used to call a mini major uh, studio was the worst experience of his life. Um, his wife at the time, believes he had a stroke in the middle of it just from stress um and you know when all of that money gets involved um and all of those you know intermediaries then it becomes the decisions are not made based on what makes the film better or worse and the kind of free-flowing way that he liked to work and that he thought was a lot of fun sort of disappears. And so in the 90s, you know, I, I said he couldn't get a film made, um, but he was able to get uh, a bunch of scripts sold. And I think he just sort of like had a sort of working retirement, like he was around 60 at that time. And he loved writing, he managed to make it into a sort of collaborative effort where he would work with his producer, but he'd also bring in, you know, novelists and filmmakers and all sorts of people. And they'd, you know, like uh, they'd drink and smoke and come up with a new script. Uh, and if he was all alone, he'd just like wake up in the morning and put on ESPN or old movies and start typing away at his typewriter. Um, and so in a lot of ways, like that sort of becomes his vocation more than actual filming of movies. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of resentment that was uh, obviously tinged with bitterness. Um, you know, at a certain point he did, like he would have liked to have sold out to make War of the Worlds or his adaptation of The Stand, or, you know, like he did have like big ideas, but Hollywood basically considered him an amateur, even though Dawn of the Dead and Night of the Dead had been, you know, big hits because he had never worked in the studios before. So I think that only sort of cemented his um, uh, resentment of Hollywood. Um, yeah. In that context, could you talk briefly about Land of the Dead as a studio picture? I, I saw him um, at a screening of Diary of the Dead and um, he wasn't 
completely negative about Land of the Dead, but he had not enjoyed the production experience at all. And he expressed quite a bit of relief, you know, to do Diary of the Dead after that. And, you know, just enjoying no longer being beholden to the suits who were bossing around and so on. Um, I mean, at the, and at the time I thought, yes, but Land of the Dead is like really solid and in many ways a better film than Diary of the Dead. Yeah. But that's not how he saw it, I think. Um, so I've talked to a couple of people who worked on Land of the Dead and it was, it was kind of a horrifying experience for George because it was so intense. It just required so much of him um, in the sense that he was, you know, like he was not just making the film, but like answering to all of these suits and managing the sort of logistics for what was probably his biggest production mm -hmm. at that point. Um, and, you know, I, I think he's very bad at the logistics. He's a terrible businessman. He's terrible at organization. Like his ideal um, is kind of Night of the Living Dead. Like he always was sort of like trying to chase that dragon of Night of the Living Dead, but with money enough to print out a new draft of the script when they made some changes or so that everyone didn't have to sleep on the floor of the house they're, they're filming in. Um, but Land of the Dead was the film on which like it had been so long since he had had a hit, like his entire career, his ability to ever make a film again was writing on it. He had made one film in the previous decade and it was Bruiser, a film which I'm guessing nobody here has seen because almost nobody has seen it. Um, and okay, <laughs> I should have known, um, but not very many people like it. <laughs> it was a, um, it was a pretty notorious flop. Um, and the only way, you know, as with Dawn of the Dead, making another sequel was the only way he could get back into feature filmmaking. Um, so, so much was writing on it that he just like was putting in 20 hour days. He was like in his, he would have been, yeah, in his sixties at that point. Um, so he, uh, you know, was exhausted. Um, and like, I don't think he could physically have ever done that again. Um, I do think that his opinions of his movies are largely based on his experience filming them. Yeah. So he loves Knight Riders because it was the most fun movie. Like he hung out with his friends in the country and you know, like he and Ed Harris got really close and they rode some motorcycles and uh, made uh, Tom Savini pose in a Speedo and you know, like just had a bunch of, uh, had a bunch of picnics and such. You see the behind the scenes pictures and it's like one big party. Um, but, uh, you know, like Land of the Dead, I think is one that he likes the movie fine, but he does not look back on it with particular fondness for that reason, I think. I would put in um, a quick plug for Land of the Dead because I know some of us here uh, don't watch, I think Laura identified herself as not watching a lot of horror films and, and maybe some of you haven't seen uh, many or any Romero movies and Land of the Dead is a real standout for me um, as a, a post 9-11 movie and as a film critical of um, George W. Bush and maybe the first 
theatrical feature, American theatrical feature to really kind of take that on in a serious way through yeah. the allegory of science fiction slash horror. So I think it might be a good starter film for some people who maybe don't come to it as zombie lovers or <laughs> aficionados, but would yeah. be interested in that political context. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was the most political theatrical release of, was it, of whichever year it was released, like just after the Iraq war started. And it yeah. was like, you know, there was no other theatrical film that was that explicitly yeah. political. Yeah. The only other thing I can think of around that time, it would be the Masters of Horror episode Homecoming, which is yeah. not a theatrical film, but like if- Another if, zombie uh, movie. Right, so Laura just said like, that could get me into horror. I would also recommend the uh, Masters of Horror Showtime series episode called The Homecoming that is a zombie episode that is very harsh about George W. Bush. Yeah, for some reason, the like uh, elder statesmen of horror got together and decided that zombie movies in 2005 or 2006, zombie movies were the, uh, the proper vehicle for denouncing the Iraq war. Um, yeah. in, in Land of the Dead, um, Dennis Hopper is doing a Donald Rumsfeld impression. Um, and, you know, like the, it's, it's his most explicitly political film with like a capital P, like it's about politics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that um, subtlety is uh, overrated as, a, um, uh, as an aspect of cinema. Yeah, home and homecoming, which is not Romero, to be clear. It's um, uh, is it Joe Dante? It's Joe Dante. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, homecoming like features voting prominently, like zombie voting. Yeah. I don't want to say more than that, but we're at a moment we're thinking about voting a lot. It's particularly um, it's a good moment. Um, and I'll just I'll just say like so um, you know this this talk was cut down considerably from a first draft that could have lasted three hours. Um, uh, but one of the things that I talked about in there was, um, you know, it's not just that Romero kind of stumbled backwards into horror after he couldn't get other stuff made, um, but he kind of only made one movie that ever tried to scare people. Like Night of the Living Dead was a very scary movie for 1968. I don't know if it'll give you nightmares in 2020. Um, not just because, you know, reality is scary enough, but, um, you know, after that, he would use horror um, as a way to, you know, tell different kinds of stories, uh, whether it's a zombie movie or a vampire movie or, you know, Creepshow, which is like an adaptation of 50s or a, a transposition of 50s, you know, cheesy horror comics, like, they're all thought of as horror and I guess they are, but it's not horror in the sense that they're trying to like scare you or give you nightmares. They're using monsters and horror tropes to do whatever he was interested in basically. Um, it's 6.35, we could take another, maybe one last question. If there's anyone, I cannot see your hand. So hop in if you, um... Anyone out there? I think there's an, a question in the Q&A. Oh, uh, sorry. Um, let's see. Uh, Tim Jackson, what was his history with Brother Blue? I always thought it was wonderful for the storyteller's legacy that he was in Knight Riders. Yeah, um, I don't have a ton of insights into that. Um, he was, George was pretty terrible at keeping records. 
And most of the production documents that we have are from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s when somebody else was keeping records. So we don't have a ton, but what I do know about Brother Blue is that he was somebody that George knew from Pittsburgh. Like he just, he knew him from like working in, or, you know, like traveling in the same circles. He was local color, not unlike, you know, Heather and I are both huge fans of a documentary called Sweet Sal. Um, that's about just like a local guy in Braddock who's, you know, strange and delightful and just completely charismatic and charming. And George just put him in his movie, uh, in, in Night Riders. Um, and, you know, he had written the part of um, Merlin for a, like, a, a black man. Um, supposedly Morgan Freeman read for the part, but he only read for the part, this is the way George would tell the story, so that he could lecture George afterwards and say, this part should be a part for a man, not a black man. George said, well, it says in the script, black man, and that's the character. And so it's a strange little anecdote. Um, but I think he always had Brother Blue in mind for it. Like whether or not he could have hired Morgan Freeman, that would certainly put the, it would put the film into, it would make it something else for sure. But he is, he's kind of him himself. Like he's given a character and, uh, you know, lines and all of that, but he's, asked to bring that sort of local color um, in a way that Romero often likes to do in his movies, especially at that time when he was, you know, really sort of tapped into Pittsburgh, I guess. Um, Great. Well, thank you. Um, and thank you, uh, Amber, for pointing out that I missed that uh, one in the Q&A. Um, I think maybe we're ready to wrap up. Um, thank you so much, Adam, for your time and presenting all this really uh, interesting material. And um, I encourage anyone who has more questions or thoughts or follow-up to get in touch with Adam directly. Um, and I'm sure because he has so much more to share. So thank you. If we could do a pause. Yay. Um, thanks, Heather. Thanks, thanks, Scott. Thanks, everybody. Um, this was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, no, I, I put my uh, email address in the chat and you know if anybody has any follow-ups please feel free I obviously love talking about this stuff so <laughs> don't don't hold back that's great thanks so much all right I'm going to uh end this meeting now then bye everyone all right thank you all bye thank you bye.